from the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th and G, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. This episode, we welcome our buddies David Castagnetti and Bruce Melman back. We're talking through Bruce's new deck. It's Roaring 2020s. Hope you enjoy. Bruce Melman, David Castagnetti, welcome back to 14th and G. Good to be here. Hello, Sierra. Um, I like welcoming you back to your own studio. It makes me feel good. Um, I paid for this microphone. <laughs> that's like the first time that's literally been true. <laughs> All right. So uh, we are here talking in our quarterly discussion about um, your uh, quarterly slide deck. Um, and a big chunk of it was economic. Um, um, and let's just start with the big piece, right? So. It feels like we're talking about socialism and capitalism all over the place here. It feels like, um, you know, uh, both ends of the spectrum have a pretty dramatic difference of of, uh, how to solve economic problems. But it also just feels like there's a growing kind of economic blah, which is a very technical term for, you know, I think regular folks aren't feeling what has been a real big boom. What do you think, Bruce? Well, it's... It's fair to say, and here's a term I didn't coin, it's the best of times and the worst of times. Certainly when you look at the growth of the U.S. economy, when you look at the stock markets, when you look at all these uh, incredible tech companies, uh, America's really showing uh, its economic prowess, its entrepreneurial success, its innovative genius, which is awesome. Uh, But at the same time, as you point out, uh, the majority, the maybe bottom 80%, the bottom 90% aren't enjoying the same type of, uh, of wage growth, the same type of wealth expansion, uh, and it is leading to what feels like the Wayback Machine. You know, the politics of Eugene V. Debs in the 19-teens and 20s, where we're talking about is socialism right, which, you know, Bernie Sanders is a longtime democratic socialist, I think is the way he phrases it. Yep. Um, and, uh, and you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's policy guy whose, whose Twitter handle he chose is every billionaire is a policy failure. Uh, you have the economic report of the president, which mentioned socialism about, not joking, a hundred times. I've, I tend to think that the, the broad systemic question isn't really being called, uh, but we are asking ourselves whether the economic system we have in place is working. It, just to pick up on that, I think, to underscore Bruce's point, that, you know, the top 1% is doing pretty well, and they have for a while. Uh, middle income wage workers are having a much more difficult time. And while I think there's a, certainly a political debate about capitalism and socialism, the real place is a little bit where Elizabeth Warren is, which is we need to redefine capitalism a little bit and we need to redefine the ability for people to get ahead again and relive the American dream to go to the best of times and worst of times, Bruce. The, um, the other thing that sticks out to me is, um, and I, Democratic presidential campaigns have been mentioning this a bunch recently, so it's just sticking to me, but just like, you know, there's some stat that's like, you know, um, 75% of the country has like a, you know, if they get like a $600 bill, they're, they're in some real financial hurt. That feels like disaster scenario potentially for a lot of folks. And where I'm going with that is, 
that's leading to all this other unrest, which feels like people are just unsettled. They don't feel comfortable, so they scream at each other on Twitter, and so they, you know, political factions run to their corners. Um, am I viewing that wrong, Chris? Well, no, we are in an era of anxiety. I would date it to 9-11. You know, maybe right before it, you had the tech bubble crash. You then have uh, what had seemed like post-Cold War, we were, you know, everything had been figured out. Uh, suddenly you realized how vulnerable we are to the airplanes flown into the, uh, the World Trade Center. You fast forward six years, you have the Great Recession, and suddenly everything we thought we knew about uh, capitalism and, and, uh, and uh, securitized uh, products being uncrashable turned out wasn't very true. And so on the heels of that, you have uh, geopolitical anxiety, you have economic anxiety, you know, and, and there is demographic anxiety. Ours is a, a nation that's rapidly changing, and, and I tend to think and you tend to think for the better uh, but there are a lot of ways in which uh, it's a rapidly changing country. And when you when you saw some of the interviews with the voters uh, in the industrial Midwest who explained why the message that the president offered on immigration appealed to them, they said they feel like strangers in their own country. Mm -hmm. I think just on, on that, the, the place I'd pick up is people, you're talking about $600 in debt. See, I imagine mm -hmm. the young kid who's coming out of college and he has $100,000 in debt, yeah. right, as as he starts or she starts her career, right? That that adds to a lot of angst as well. But I think some of it in the redefinition to kind of back where you were of what the new world looks like, right? To a certain degree, we have to modernize our safety, our safety net again, right? What's our retirement security reform? How do we pay for college education? How do we reinvent the social compacts that we live in. We have to broaden opportunities for people. Maybe we have to look at some political reforms. I mean, we, there's certainly been a lot of talk about do we elect the president uh, not through the electoral college anymore, right? Another reasonable debate. Clearly, there's market angst that, that Bruce touched on, and is it time to look at potentially breaking up some big companies and starting to revisit some of our antitrust questions uh, that we have uh, sitting in front of us right now? It's interesting because, you know, we've been talking about this kind of on and off and around for the last year or two, certainly since Trump's been president. Um, but Trump and uh, Bernie Sanders are, are hitting on the same problem with different potential answers, right? You know, the problem is uh, people don't feel comfortable for all these variety of reasons, and then their solutions are wildly different, right? So uh, I suspect we'll see this play out in the presidential election again. What role does the media and social media play in this? Because it feels to me like we're in a place that we've seen before, except for we've got gasoline on the fire. Um, and maybe I'm wrong, but it just feels like you know, when we went to the Industrial Revolution or, or some other, you know, when we transformed farming and all that stuff, like, I felt like, you know, that, that there wasn't a huge amplifier that everyone could scream at each other. Yeah, but spoken like somebody who reads history books, mm -hmm. you know, for the people who lived through it, there were new, new technologies, newspapers uh, had become far less expensive. The radio was new, television was new. And when you do look at U.S. history, what you'll find is... Uh, when there are big systemic evolutions, as we saw from agrarian mercantilism to industrial corporatism. You just like to use big words. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't invent any of them. But what that you find Princeton is, education yeah, is exactly. paying off. You find that systems that are in place to help channel this incredible positivity uh, uh, engine of capitalism, uh, 
don't always help fit. So David talked about antitrust. You know, there was an antitrust law when Rockefeller and Carnegie showed sure. up, and people realized you need something to restrain uh, these business titans who had figured out new ways to corner markets that didn't exist in the mid-1800s. There is some of that going on as we've moved to an internet globalist economy now. And and uh, we entitled the new slide deck, the Roaring 2020s, precisely because we think the next decade is a lot of disruption and a lot of reform. I think uh, just to pick up on that too, to see, I think in terms of the social media space specifically, right, it allows elected officials to speak directly to the consumer or directly to the voter, right? Mm -hmm. The filter is gone. The Walter Cronkites of the world don't exist. There's no referee uh, anymore or somebody informing us. We're listening to our friends. We're chatting with our friends in the social media spaces. A person like uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez who has, uh, uh, Bruce, what was the latest numbers? Almost five million followers um twitter four million four million over four million followers on twitter right you wonder why she's driving a debate she has an audience that's paying attention to her right and she's created that network in you know less than a year almost well you know two things first uh, when i recently gave a speech i screwed up and instead of walter cronkite i said walter johnson (laughs) uh, we weren't talking about great great fastballs (laughs) former pitchers but but you mentioned aoc and it's what's what's fascinating about her is her ability to drive the debate. I mean, at the end of the day, if you need to pass a law, you better go to Speaker Pelosi, because AOC probably is not gonna pass any laws per se, but Democrats are talking about a 70% ultra-millionaire tax, talking about a Green New Deal. You know, one metric that we included in the slide deck um, is a a simple way to tell a complex story was, uh, if you wanna know her, how, how virality has given her prominence, let's look at how many days it took some of the last century's top congressional leaders to make it to the cover of Time Magazine. And so whereas JFK, you know, hero of PT uh, 109, that's it, uh, took him almost 4,000 days. It took Newt 5,788 days. Boehner took 7,242 days. Speaker Pelosi didn't even make the cover of Time the first time. She was the first speaker in, in, in history, which frankly is a... There is a long history of that, and a and trust me, she does not uh, <laughs> at all... That, that, that fact has not missed her uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and, um, I, I mean, I, I'll candidly say that's totally insane that it she was It is totally insane. You and I agree. She should have made the cover when she first made the speaker, sure. if not before. However, that would have still been about 9,000 days after she was first sworn in, mm-hmm. AOC was on the cover of Time Magazine 89 days after getting sworn in. I think the only problem with that is I think there's probably only 89 people that yeah. read Time Magazine <laughs> now. But I mean, we, we can debate it's an American that. icon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're I mean, never going to make Man of the Year. Let me just say. <laughs> so let's take this conversation to politics. So, so it's easy for everyone to keep throwing gasoline on this fire. The safe place to be is to run the left or the right and say that the middle sucks. How do you see this playing out in the presidential election? I mean, we have a tw- now 20, as of today, we have 21 people in the Democratic primary. Um, Congratulations. Uh, yeah. That worked out great for us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, 21's a lucky number, though, tw- if you're in Vegas. So. 21 people, um, all, you know, pretty qualified on their own, on their own sense. Um, and we have a president who, you know, has no problem um, picking fights with anybody and everybody. Um, so how do you see this playing out as we go through a presidential election? Are we going to go have the same fights over the same group of, of disaffected white folks in the Midwest with di- presenting them with diff- different solutions again? Or is this some other thing? 
So I, I think, Sierra, as you as you think about it, it partially depends on who the Democratic candidate is, right? Um, uh, Vice President Biden is clearly making it a race that he can beat Donald Trump and he can beat Donald Trump in the Rust Belt states, right? That's his focus. That's his theme. That's what he thinks he's going to do. The other side of it, back to Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, the debate of the party is changing. And is the party also becoming left? Or is it also becoming way more diverse, right? As you think about the House caucus, less than 40% of that House caucus is white men, right? So you're seeing a new focus. And if it's another candidate, if it's a Carmela Harris or a Cory Booker or, or Pete Buttigieg that wins, you know, you can start to see the Democrats play in states like Georgia and Arizona and maybe change the map to get to a, a, a new number. I think a little bit is what does the new party look like and where is it structured and who's leading that party? Yeah, you know, look, it's, it is uh, when you have a contested primary, if you're a Republican, it drives you right. And if you're Democrats, it drives you left. Um, this is a wokeathon. At 21, you need to be in favor of Medicare for all, which you're going to pay for with a wealth tax. And the Green New Deal should stop uh, the uh, the Trump golf courses from 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 growing as fast as they are. And that way, you can afford reparations for slavery. And you know they're out there. All the student debt shall be forgiven. You know the the dead shall rise again. I mean, this is. Uh, it's kind of like the White Walkers on Game of Thrones. Yeah, right? they're, uh, well, you know, when you look at Bernie and uh, Joe Biden, it does feel like the White Walkers, if you have to say. But it's, it's uh, the Democrats have the challenge, of course, is that they want to win the popular vote and really capture the energy of millennials and the energy of the, of the future uh, party that they are. Or do they want to go back uh, and be more effective than Secretary Clinton was in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania and Florida? Um, they need Dems need to pick up at least one, if not a couple of those. And if they don't, then we've we've seen that election. Well, we know I, th- how it goes. I think there's two things there. You guys are both saying similar uh, similar things. First, I would say the president over the weekend spent 21 specific tweets on Mr. Biden, Vice President Biden. He's clearly concerned that pre- that at least right now that Vice President Biden is going to go try to go get Pennsylvania and Michigan back mm-hmm. from him. It's cl- very very clear that he is concerned about that. But I would say. To Casto's point, like, okay, so let's say Democrats don't win Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. I think they will, but let's say they don't. But they let's say they win Arizona and, and Georgia and Colorado. and Colorado or whatever. I mean, do they change the map, too? It doesn't, you know, I think that's a whole second discussion. Uh, I'm interested in, on that front in the in – the, um, Biden went right after Trump, and Trump has gone right after Biden. They clearly are going to go fight over the same people. That seems like I think that I think Biden's path to victory is Trump's path to path to victory. I think Bernie Sanders, fill in the blank, anybody else can come up with a different map. That's what it feels like from the president's response to the vice president getting in. All right, so let's take this to you know some version of an agenda. I say that skeptically. We had a White House meeting on uh, with Pelosi and Schumer and uh, the president this week on infrastructure which seemed to, at least the reports out, seemed like people were okay. What's your take on, on kind of what, a, what a, a spring, summer agenda might be? I think on that, I mean, the, the, certainly the meeting with the president and the, Mrs. Pelosi and Mr. Schumer and some of the other Democratic leaders, you, you summed it up well, went very well in terms of the optics, the agreement, at least in principle, to a $2 trillion infrastructure deal. There's been a lot of rhetoric uh, since then. The Republicans feel like they're in a little more of a civil war right now about how to pay for it and what is that 
what does that look like? Um, you know, this is clearly a test case. You know, Mrs. Pelosi, I believe, will move something, right, legislatively. Uh, she has to move something legislatively, right? It seems like infrastructure is the logical place. Drug pricing might be another, but mm-hmm. she has to also show that she can govern. Uh, Senator Schumer's, you know, said from the beginning when President Trump got elected that this should infrastructure should be the first item that they worked on. So you can see him putting pressure on uh, Leader McConnell to to move something forward. We clearly have a long way to go. It's difficult uh, for the two parties to come together. There's been a lot of partisan sniping, obviously, and as we get closer to the the election, a lot. But on the other side, you know, we, as we as we look back and think about last Congress for a second, you know, we we had some big win, uh, some big electoral victories. Right? I, I'm sorry, can't uh, legislative victories. I'm just getting ahead of myself here. <laughs> uh, getting some big legislative victories in terms of a new ag bill, some reforms on Dodd Frank, uh, chip reauthorization, children's health insurance reauthorization. Right, there, there were some big wins, and so who, who knows how this kind of comes together at the end. Well, I certainly agree with David that a lot more is getting done than most people give you credit for, give give Congress credit for. And most members we know are there for the right reasons and want to get things done. What we found is the highest profile things that are on Fox and MSNBC are the things that tend to get stuck. On infrastructure, you know, it's Pelosi's playing her best game these days and she's going to need to. Because what's interesting to me on infrastructure is one can easily envision Speaker Pelosi picking a ginormous dollar number on a bill the unions love and having Trump say, I'll take it. And Trump not worrying so much about the short-term deficit. If you're Nancy Pelosi, can you really afford, we were just saying the Rust Belt's really important, Biden's trying to, Biden's not part of this deal. So can the Democrats really give President Trump a win that's so important to the industrial Midwest that's such a massive uh, you know, uh, fiscal stimulus too, which will just give that much more wind at the back of the economy. My own sense is I think the Dems are going to have to spike their proposal with enough poison pills, pay-fors probably in tax raisers uh, that the president won't be able to embrace. Uh, but they may be surprised at how far he's willing to meet them to cut a deal. Uh, and so, you know, it will probably be transparent if what they put forward is not really an attempt to get to a deal. I would just say to, to Bruce's point, to take the question the other way, is can the president afford to cut a deal with the Democrats, right? Can can the president come out in favor of a gas tax increase, uh, which is obviously something the Democrats have been talking Why not? about? Does he want a victory? I don't know. Does, does that show his base that he's weak because he has to cut a deal with Mrs. Pelosi and Mr. Schumer in order to move something uh, forward? And not, put his but, Senate but think together. about his base. They, so that's that's, a, yeah. that's the right question on some things. Immigration is where he showed that there was a deal and it looked like he was going to cut it and he heard from the base. There is no part of the uh, Trump Republican base upset about immigra- upset about uh, infrastructure. I, I would argue. Well, I, I would argue in terms if you go to the pay fors, I think the ad community would certainly have something to say if you're going to raise the gas tax at some point, right? There, How you pay for part, it could be yeah, the yeah, risk. That, that's the challenge that the president has, and ultimately, as as you raise the right question, can Mrs. Pelosi cut a deal with the president? Can the president cut a deal with Mrs. Pelosi? Is that a reasonable place that 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 they both want to be? And there's 
you know, I think people forget this often, but there's 40 members of Congress that are under Mrs. Pelosi's watch that won Trump districts. And they're mm-hmm. going to have to point to something that they agree with the president on, right, uh, theoretically. Um, but I, I don't think it's a gas tax. I think the president's going to get handed, I think, or the Senate's going to get handed a, a, trans- a, a infrastructure bill paid for by raising the corporate rate, which goes back after his 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 key thing and then that's that's where the mm-hmm. the kind of blood hits the ground there i'm not sure i'm not sure he can swallow a corporate rate raise after he just lowered it um two couple other ones that are in the in the realm of possible and also relatively higher profile so um privacy um there's a lot of discussion in the senate about a privacy bill bruce you're the tech guy here what's happening in privacy that's a polite way to say nerd I <laughs> you know uh yeah there there is there's actually a lot greater chance for federal privacy legislation than any time in a really long time um in part because if there is no action the europeans privacy rule the gdpr is already in effect california's privacy laws which include the uh, right for anybody to sue uh, take effect january 1 2020 Suddenly, you have a lot of folks motivated to try to come up with a better system that applies across the United States. Um, also, as noted a moment ago, this isn't a partisan, this isn't a Trump yep. v. Uh, Democratic opponent issue. Mm-hmm. So this one has the chance to, to fly below uh, all of the attention. And you're seeing in the Senate in particular, a gang of six, they call themselves right now, but three Democrats, three Republicans, genuinely attempting to work together. The issues are not, uh, you know, like abortion or, or guns sure. or the base issues. Yep. A deal ought to be gettable. I think just on, on privacy specifically, I would just say this is a place where the right and the left have been together for a very long time, and it's really the middle that's catching up to the right and left. So, is it you know there's a potential for there? I think a lot of the Wall Street analysts. Uh, that I've read over the uh, last few days of kind of putting the number at like 35% chance that there will be a privacy legislation. That seems fairly reasonable. Yeah. Not out of the, not out of the question. Um, all right. So, uh, Casso, you're our trade guy. Um, another issue which is, you know, kind of percolating out is this um, USMCA um, NAFTA 2.0. Um, where does that stand now? Has that got a shot? Now, that carries with it a lot more politics than other things do, for certain. But um, what do you think? I think, you know, on that, I mean, the, the first thing to note on USMCA is Mexico passed its uh, labor laws. One of the items that Mrs. Pelosi asked to happen before the bill would come to the floor um, so that's kind of interesting and a relatively new dynamic. You know, it, it's still difficult to get it through. I think, CR, you nailed it on the head. This is another political discussion and a little bit the discussion we were having before is can they give each other a victory at the end of the day? I think the new one in this, I mean, we always talk about labor and environmental issues as part of the trade debate. The new, the new debate really is on the uh, IP issues given to the pharmaceutical industry. And what does that mean? And when you look at Congressman Blue Blumenauer laying that down uh, as one of the issues that has to be dealt with, and this bill has to go through his subcommittee, it sets up a little bit of a different fight than in the past, too, on the substantive side, not just the political side. The other piece is uh, uh, Congressman Allred, uh, Allred from Texas and, and Congresswoman Haley Stevens from Michigan are leading a band of new 
uh, newly elected Democrats as open to the idea of a new new USMCA. That changes the dynamic a little bit, and there's some pressures there that Mrs. Pelosi will will have to deal with. There's also the Senator Grassley version of what do we do about tariffs and the pressure yep. that uh, he's under on the tariff side. But you know, uh, again, I, I I keep this on my watch list, and there is a potential that you can see a deal happening. At the Although, end of the David, day. I'd ask you: Do you think politically? Is it better for the president, uh, for Congress to pass the new NAFTA, USMCA, when trade still is a four-letter word for a lot of Americans, or is it better for him, for those who like trade, to know that he's cut a better deal than that, he's cut a deal, and that the Democrats are blocking it, and concurrently, for, for those who don't like NAFTA, he can say, I've got a better NAFTA, and they're not giving it to you. I sometimes wonder if he's not better off if... The deal's right there, and the Dems are, are blocking it as opposed to either passing it or, or, or killing it. I can take a different slice of Please. that, too, which is the Colin Allerads and the folks who've won Trump districts. Voting on this actually creates more problems than having it as an issue. Mm-hmm. Being able to point to something and say, hey, I agree with Trump. We should re, we should up redo NAFTA without actually having to vote on it and pick on people is, is the same kind of conundrum that, that, that he's in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that will be – Mrs. Pelosi's really going to have to figure out, you know – Unless the president pulls out of NAFTA, which he could do, Mrs. Pelosi is really going to have to be the one to figure out where that line is between voting on it and not voting on it. And uh, here's my uh, my caption on Mrs. Pelosi. She's really doing a really good job figuring out the politics of how to deal with her caucus and where to position her caucus. And she ultimately will drive this, and the president's pretty clear about that. But uh, I think she will do what she needs to do in order to either get the victory or not uh, get a victory. All right. So two last questions. The first one is um, oversight and investigations. There's been all this Bob Barr stuff this week and there's, you know, should Mueller come in? Here's the question I have for you. This: Does anyone outside of the cable news networks care about this? No. <laughs> I mean, you, you, list of, you listen to various members uh, who we've been talking to when they come back from their town halls and going back home. Mueller at Barr is not at the top of their, of their discussion of their constituents. They are focusing on health care, the economy, immigration. Uh, it's a great uh, uh, talking point back in D.C. The process will keep moving forward even to a certain degree even today mrs pelosi clearly criticized attorney general Barr for not attending the house hearing but at the same time she's not banging the walls down for the impeachment of the president so mm-hmm. you know the, 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 you can see there's some ability here that Mueller is not as important in an election poli- for election politics. Well, and look, putting aside uh, health of the republic, rule of law, and kind of the, the, the core, it's just as a raw political matter, it is helping Donald Trump. Yeah. Because outside of Washington, there's a perception that he is being persecuted, prosecuted, and if they get the chance, electrocuted by the left and right. by the media. And, and a lot of folks think it's over the top. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually have a, a view of this, which is that if we are to put back the middle to your point on saving the republic, et cetera, this would be the kind of place at some point in time if Republicans came out and said, like, we just can't act like X. We get to a point where it's like, you know, we can't 
lie under oath. We can't obstruct justice. We can't whatever the things are. You mean actually, like the Democrats did when there was a when the Democrat senators did when it was Bill Clinton. Oh no, no, that's right. That was okay. No, I'm, no, I'm not saying it's okay. I think that's I think I think it's exact same actually. I think if Democratic senators had come to a place, I think then the country would start to think like that the that the Hill, the House and Senate, could actually stand for something. Which right now, I I think that's the only thing they care about here. I don't think they care what the president did. I don't think they care about the oversight investigations. But I do think they think like. It seems logical that we should have some rules, and y'all are supposed to be the ones doing that. I I think just to pick up on that, Senator McConnell's clearly leading the charge in protecting the president, right? When the president has an approval number of 90% within the Republican Party, you know, sends a message to where the base is and what they have to worry about. Of course, if the president's at a 90% approval rating, is Senator McConnell protecting him, or is he protecting Senator McConnell, who's up for re-election? He's protecting Senator thing. McConnell, too. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. kind of happens to go together pretty well this time. Peanut butter and chocolate. <laughs> All right, so last question, um, and this is a, a little bit, um, I'm surprising you, you are unprepared for this. So if there's one member of Congress or Senator that you're watching over the next six months who's not running for president, I know that <laughs> eliminates so a lot of people, right, exactly. Um, who is it and why? And then I'll, I'll throw mine on as, at, at the end. The, the person I like to watch the most uh, right now, and I think she has an incredible future in front of her, is Catherine Clark. I think she is, she's the vice chair of the Democratic caucus right now. She's part of the progressive part of the party, but a, a very kind of middle-of-the-road person who can bring people together. She's incredibly gifted and working kind of the, the, the moderates and the liberals at the same time uh, and has done an amazingly uh, strong job kind of helping Mrs. Pelosi behind the scenes and making things happen. I'm watching Cory Gardner, Republican senator from Colorado, who's, you know, who's uh, young and, and enthusiastic and a total happy warrior. And he managed to win what is a, certainly a traditionally and increasingly blue state last time. Mm-hmm. He's up for reelection. He's personally very popular. It's a pretty good bet Colorado goes Democratic in the, uh, in the presidential. So he's going to have to run some number of points ahead of the president. You can't run against the president or you lose a third of the Republican base uh, yep. that loves him. But if you if you uh, staple yourself to the president in Colorado, you may not run ahead of him. Mm-hmm. So he's got a uh, he's got a real challenge in his state. But if any Republican senator can pull off, you know, the the uh, five to ten point running ahead of the president in their state, I think it's Gardner. <laughs> so I'm going to add one. And it's a, a little bit of a different one. I've been watching and I continue to watch Senator Schatz. Senator Schatz is a senator from Hawaii, uh, relatively low profile on the national scene, but he seems to be really working the inner workings. He's part of this privacy working group. He understands tech. Um, If there are antitrust issues that come up, if there is privacy issues that start to move, if there's a bunch of other things that that start to happen, I actually think he may be one of the key voices to make them happen. He also happens to not run for be a senator who's not running for president, so we've narrowed the list. You're just hoping he's going to invite you out to the. uh, (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. All right. Who are you kissing up to Cory Booker in New Jersey? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not making I'm not making any friends with any people in cold states. Right. Um, all right. Uh, David Castagnetti, Bruce Melman, thanks a lot. Thanks, thanks yeah. Always good to have the bosses on the show. Uh, if you're looking for me, my email address is wooters at mc-dc.com. Until next time, the intersection of business and policy will be right here at 14th and Chief.